pray. Father, we are just overjoyed to come together this morning and just full of joy to read this passage. Father, it is a an incredible story of how you worked in the life of the Apostle Paul, all the way back when he was an enemy of the church and called by a different name. And Father, that is an incredible, glorious thing to remember this morning, for we we also remember, Father, that we were once those that were enemies of yours. And, and even if not to the extent of Saul, we we were enemies of the church and we hated uh, the Bible and we hated the, the reality of who you are as our King and our Lord. Um, and Father, we are grateful that one day in our lives, for those here who are saved, one day you reached into our lives and t- opened our blind eyes and caused us to see and allowed us to understand Christ and the gospel and salvation and to come before you as our King and to repent and believe. And so, Father, we rejoice in that and thank you for it. Um, for it is all of you. That There is nothing that um, we could have achieved on our own or understood on our own that could have made us your children. And, Father, it is simply the, the reality that you have reached into our lives just like you reached uh, so clearly into the life of the Apostle Paul. And so, Father, we rejoice in that this morning and pray that you would teach us from your word. We thank you for the new life you have given us and ask that you would continue to sanctify and grow us this morning through the fellowship of the saints and through the the preached word and the worship songs and the time that we spend together coming before you. And we praise you and thank you, O God, that we can do... ...on the book of Galatians, and I would advise you to... Read up the book of Galatians on your own if you could. I think it would be very helpful in getting the most out of these messages. We're going to begin where we left off last week, and that's going to be on verse number 17. Chapter 1, verse 17 and following. We get a large portion here that we're going to uh, a, a, attempt to address. Verse 17, Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. Cephas is Peter, by the way, verse 19. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. In what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went up into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. Chapter 2, verse 1. Now, then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles, in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we may have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved in you, for you. And, for, and from those who seem to be influential, 
What they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing that I was eager to do. Verse 11. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. What is all of this about? Why this long biographical sketch of Paul's travels? It's important that we understand that Paul is trying to certify his apostleship to the Gentiles. Anything that Paul writes, he obviously has to endorse that his writings with some degree of authority. And that's what he's trying to assure the Galatians that... As he says earlier, I certify you, brethren, that the gospel that was preached of me was not of man. Neither received I it of man, neither was I taught it, but by the revelation of Jesus Christ. So here Paul, from verse 17 down to where we read, is trying to give to the Galatians assurance of his apostolic calling and the authority that he has in writing what he's writing. And that's how we should look at the Bible in general for ourselves. That this is authoritative, it is inspired, it is infallible, it is unaltered, it is 100% dependable. This is where our assurance lies. We have that confidence that these things are written so that we can have comfort and assurance from the Scriptures. But let's look back a little bit over the life of Paul. I don't know how well acquainted everybody might be, but I think it could be helpful if we just take a little moment and think about the Apostle Paul, whose former name was what? Saul. Why was he called Saul? Saul of Tarsus. He was probably named after King Saul. What tribe was King Saul a part of? Benjamin, right. He was not of the tribe of Judah. He was of the Benjaminite uh, Benjaminite, uh, tribe. So, He grew up in Tarsus. He was born approximately, we can't be sure of that, about 1 AD. So he was roughly five years, six years younger than Christ on earth here, of course. Um, He was a Pharisee brought up with with a father who was a Pharisee. He calls himself, I'm a Pharisee and a son of a Pharisee. So he, he really had... Pharisaicalism ingrained in him. And there were a couple of different schools. The, Hill, the school of Hillel and Shimei were the two primary uh, Pharisaical or rabbinic schools. He was in the, 
the Hillel school, which was a more conservative one and one that we believe lined up more with biblical teaching as well. Though he was brought up a Pharisee, he was educated in Jerusalem under Gamaliel, who would have been a lead rabbi. Rabbis were the ones who would uh, organize a little flock. So Jesus was perceived as being a rabbi by many who had disciples, like other rabbis would have as well. Jesus too would have had disciples. And Paul classified himself as one that was brought up under the teaching of Gamaliel, which in that time was considered a very uh, heavy duty, a very uh, good, respectable teacher in Israel. He he winds up becoming, of course, this would this would be something that he got at birth, a Roman citizenship, uh, which was a a great pass to have as he traveled through the Mediterranean and through the various countries. It was good that he could play his uh, Roman citizenship card at times to sort of build him out of certain situations because Roman citizens had a, a special, you could say, allowances given to them that were owed to them by the empire and those that were officers in it. So Paul had that respect as a Roman citizen at times uh, because of his background. He uh, was a member or at least uh, an associate of the Sanhedrin. We have a reference to him casting a vote, which would be one of the reasons why we would think that Paul may have been a member of the Sanhedrin, which would be sort of like a, a political religious body in Israel, that um, like a Supreme Court, you could say, uh, of America, that's what he would have been. Um, we know that um, he possibly was not married. Some seem to think that he could have been married, but uh, if you read First Corinthians 7, I think you would probably come to an impression at least as Paul's advising others to remain as he is, if it's possible, if they have the gift, it's assumed that Paul was saying, I have the gift to remain celibate. I don't have a burning desire for the opposite gender. And if those that he was writing to didn't as well, he's advocating to remain single because he has benefits of being single in the way in which one could serve the Lord. So that would be one reason if he had not been married, it was supposedly a standard of the Sanhedrin that you had to be married. So that's somewhat questionable. The history about it is somewhat vague. But we do know for sure that Paul was there when the first martyr was being stoned. And he carried the robes of those. He wasn't a stone thrower himself, probably because he was a young man. And he may not have been of the age yet to be a full-blown Sanhedrin member. is a possibility. So more importantly than holding the robes of the stone throwers, he was within stone's throw or within hearing of what Stephen was saying. That, that must have been something for Saul of Tarsus to listen to Stephen's message who becomes the first martyr of the Christian church and give an overview of the history of Israel and bring it right up to snuff at the end and say, you are just like your fathers, you're uncircumcised and hot, you stubborn and rebellious Jews. And here Stephen is a Jew himself, and he's saying that to his fellow countrymen. Truthfully, Paul, isn't that Saul, I should say, was in the audience listening to that. 
And then especially Saul would have heard and seen when Stephen, the last thing that he said, he looks up into heaven, he sees the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Can you imagine how that must have hit the Sanhedrin Sadducees who did not believe in the resurrection? And Stephen is saying, I see Jesus at the right hand of God, alive. Wow. That was a total insult to the Sadducees' theology because they did not believe in the resurrection of the dead. Saul, though, himself, Paul, was a Pharisee. So this wasn't outside of the realm of biblical thinking from a Pharisaical standpoint. Jesus is alive. He's at the right hand of God. Stephen is saying this as he looked up into heaven. Only spiritual eyes can see something like that. The unsaved, they look up and they see nothing. If you're born again, you see what the world cannot see. That, that's what makes a difference. That's what makes it a struggle for us as we try to communicate to people that we see Jesus made a little lower than the angels, crowned with glory and honor. He's seated at the right hand of God and He's coming again and He's living right now in our lives, right now in my heart, personally. Saul was there attending Stephen's stoning. Sometime afterward, Paul had obtained letters to extradite believing Jews that had gone off to Damascus particularly in Acts chapter 9, he actually got letters, you could say warrants for their arrest. And when he would capture them, he would bring them back. Now Paul didn't travel alone. Saul didn't travel alone when he went to Damascus. We know from the account that was read by our brother Seth that there was a company of them. It's interesting too when the Lord reveals himself to him, Saul is knocked to the ground and it says they all heard a voice. They all heard a noise, but only Saul heard the voice of the Lord. None of the others had the revelation that Saul of Tarsus had from the Lord Jesus Christ, which is interesting. You know, sometimes people that go to church, they hear a sound but they don't hear the voice of the Lord. That's nominal Christianity versus, you could say, genuine Christianity. The ones that really hear the voice of the Lord. You have a personal relationship because the Lord has been pleased to reveal Himself to you individually. And you can say, I know whom I have believed. That's that personal relationship. Now, as he's traveling, of course, up to Damascus, which was 135 miles, which would would have taken about six solid days of traveling on a horse to get there. That tells you how much he wanted to hound these Messianic Christians, Jews. He was willing to travel that far. Now, let's stop a little bit. If Paul was born, Saul, was born in 1 A.D., meaning he was five years younger. We know that he spent his earlier years in Tarsus, which was a foreign land outside of the district of Israel. He grows up in Jerusalem. Do you ever think that Saul may have seen Jesus in person? Has that ever crossed your mind? I've wondered about that. Was was Saul at the crucifixion when Jesus was crucified? I mean, that was a big event 
to, to, for criminals to be crucified. It was a, a, a public scene that multitudes would come out and witness as a testimony for those that in the future might commit similar crimes. This is what's in store for you. Now, Saul does not indicate that he was there. There's only one passage that I think they, they come the closest to it. Can we get that? That way it is. This, see what you think of this. This is Second Corinthians 5.16. Therefore, from now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh, even though we have known, we have known Christ according to the flesh. Yet now we know him this way no longer. That particular phrase, though we have known Christ according to the flesh, I'm only suggesting it's a possibility. I'm not going to be dogmatic about it. You could read it differently than that, of course. Anyone that's unconverted, this verse can apply that way too. I think many of you that grew up in, uh, quote, Christian or Christendom had a knowledge of Jesus in that way. You've known of Christ according to the flesh, yet now you don't know him the same way. You got to know him in a better way, another way, a way that you never knew before. And it kind of surprised you because you used to always be able to say the Nicene Creed, I believe in one God, the Father Almighty and Jesus Christ, who was raised from the dead and so on and so forth. You could say those words and believe them, but you only knew Christ according to the flesh. But when you get saved, when you're born again, a new reality sets in about this Jesus. Wow, I never knew him like that. He wasn't like that to me before. Now I know him. That's why Christianity, real Christianity, is dynamic. Out of their innermost pot shall flow rivers of living water. It's exciting to be a believer on the Lord Jesus Christ. So, whether or not Paul was at the crucifixion, whether or not Paul uh, in Jerusalem ever saw Jesus, we don't know. But we do know what the Bible tells us that we're supposed to know about him. We know that after his conversion, we read last week that he went into Arabia and then he went to Damascus. And before going to Arabia, we had read in our presence in Acts chapter 9 where Paul, it says, immediately preached Christ in the synagogue. I think we have that verse to look at right here. Yeah. Immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue saying, He is the Son of God. He is the Son of God. He is the Son of God. Later on in Galatians 2, he's going to say, The Son of God loved me and gave Himself for me. So for Saul of Tarsus to say that Jesus Christ is the Son of God is like Peter saying, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And what you know, Peter, Jesus could say, has not been revealed to you by flesh and blood, but my Father which is in heaven. And the Lord Jesus came to know Jesus. I mean, Paul came to know the Lord Jesus by special revelation that the Father had given to him about the Son. And he's confident. And he goes to the synagogue. Can you imagine that? There are some knocks in the Bible that are kind of shocking. One knock would be when... Jesus rose from the dead right after his death. It says that many of the graves of the saints were opened and went into the city. 
That's an amazing passage. What would that have been like for, hey, grandma's here. What? You've been dead for 50 years. Shows up at the doorsteps. There's something going on here. This is, this is an amazing testimony to the resurrection, to the life of the Lord Jesus Christ that's communicated in picture of a future resurrection when all that are in the graves are going to hear His voice and come forth. Another amazing knock would be Peter's in prison on the night of his execution to be executed in the morning. It says that there was a prayer meeting going on at the house of Mary and all of a sudden... A knock comes to the door. Rhoda goes to answer the door, probably because of fear she didn't open it. She said, who's there? Peter said, knock, knock. Who's there? I'm Peter. Will you open the door for me? What? She couldn't handle it. She went back and she said, Peter's at the door. How do you know that? I heard his voice. It can't be Peter. It's got to be a spirit of Peter's. It's not Peter. It was Peter, really. The angel of the Lord took him out of jail. Amazing. How about this one? Where there was no knock, but there were doors, and the disciples were all shut in, in the upper room, and all of a sudden, in their midst, Jesus appears. He didn't come through any door. He didn't have to knock. He didn't ask admission. He just showed up. Here he is. And then the last one I want to talk about is here. Can you imagine when Paul came to the synagogue in Damascus and said, um, yeah, I'm Saul of Tarsus, but I got the same beliefs as you guys do. I know who you believe. I believe the same Jesus that you believe. He revealed himself to me on the road to Damascus. I was ready to execute you people. And now I want to join hands with you and I want to worship Almighty God, give praise to the Lord Jesus in the power of the Holy Spirit. What a knock on the door that must have been in Acts chapter 9 when he goes there. The persecutor becomes a preacher. The enemy's now a friend. The destroyer is a builder. The one who had the letters from the earthly high priest to go and capture these Christians now has a commendation from the heavenly high priest to go and tell sinners about the gospel that sets them free from the power of sin. What an amazing transformation. The chief of sinners becomes a chief apostle. He was the lowest of the low. He was a sinner above sinners. He was exceeding sinful. Now you might say, how could that be? He talks about himself keeping the law blamelessly. He kept the Ten Commandments outwardly very faithfully. He was a very devout man. He honored God in his conscience and so on through his lifetime. But yet he says, I'm the chiefest of sinners. Why? Because he was persecuting the church of God. Who's the church of God? That's the apple of God's eyes. Every born-again child of God comprises the church of God. And when you think of it, yesterday I had a little spat with it. I didn't have a spat. A sister had a little problem with me. Not in our church family, but uh, uh, I, I felt very bad about it. I, I didn't mean anything but with what I said and... I went home after the ministry that we were doing and I just, my gut had a you know pit in your stomach. You know those feelings you have when you got church things going on? Well, that was there. 
And I just, and I know she was angry. She left crying and I was very like distraught about it. And I, I, I knew it wasn't just the right time to just call and, and just go over or whatever. So I, after about two hours, I just had the urge to, to get on my computer and send an email to her and to the rest of the team, but her particularly. And as I'm typing the email, my phone vibrates, and it's the sister. And she says, forgive me for my poor behavior today. It was an overreaction in my flesh. And I, I said, sister, this is amazing. As you, as you just texted me in, and I showed her, I had like five words in the email that I was sending her to... I was trying to come to her on the basis of Matthew 5. She was coming to me on the basis of Matthew 18 or whatever. We ended up meeting and praise God, it, it ended up to be wonderful. But uh, it's amazing how the Lord works in our lives and creates peace in the midst of storms sometimes. So here we have the Apostle Paul. And let me quickly go through this. There's a lot, there's a lot of verses here, but it's a narrative. So I, I think I can kind of exposit this without getting into the very minute details that may not be so uh, in, in necessary uh, at, at this portion, at least, in the book of Galatians, though I don't want to minimize it. The first thing is, it says in verse number 18, he went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas. Who's Cephas? That's the, the, Ara, the uh, Aramaic word or the Hebrew word for the name, Greek name is Peter, okay? But Paul, under inspiration, is calling him Cephas. Why is that important? Because he's writing to the Gentile, I mean, to the yeah, Gentiles primarily of Galatians who are leaning towards Judaism. He says, I went to, if you will, the head apostle, to Cephas the one who Jesus calls the little rock, the rock that he was going to build his church, not in but through and, and with others as well. I won't get into that particular part. But he goes up to see Cephas. That's the first thing. Then the second thing is in verse 19, he says, and I saw no other apostles except James. Not just James, but James, the Lord's brother. Wouldn't you love to meet Jesus' brother? And say, tell me about Jesus. What was it like growing up with him? You were in the same household with him. You made mud pies with him in the, in the sandbox. I mean, you went to the synagogue with him. What was it like? Man, that must have been quite, quite a thing to dig into. Here is Jesus' brother. Now we, I don't have to explain to this audience what is meant by brother. Obviously they weren't full-blooded brothers, but from the side of Mary you could say they both emerged from the same womb. They had a common biological relationship. And he is going to see James, the Lord's brother. You can't get any closer than Peter and James, the Lord's brother, to the inner circle of a relationship with Jesus. And Jesus is the final authority. He's the teacher. So let's go to his under-shepherds, Cephas first, James the Lord's brother second. Boy, that's something to meditate upon, sitting around with James, talking about Jesus. 
from a standpoint that only someone like he would know. None of the other other apostles knew Jesus before they were called after Jesus' messianic identity came to the surface. So the third thing is it said, he says that he went to, around to the regions of Syria and Cilicia. He said, I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They were only hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith which he once was trying to destroy. They only heard that. In verse 24, the fourth thing says, uh, that's, yeah, the third thing rather. They glorify God because of me. They glorify God. Not, they didn't glorify Paul. No one should take credit for their salvation. If you've been saved, it's not because you attained it. You didn't, uh, educate yourself enough to become a Christian. You didn't, uh, uh mentally understand it and, and get saved because God said, alright, you passed the test, I'm gonna re-. No, it's all because of the glory of God. It's all by grace alone. We have to sing from the top of our lungs, amazing grace that saved a wretch like me. Chapter 2.1. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas. Barnabas was a reputable brother. He was respected. He was a, a, a son of consolation. He was an encouraging brother. He had a reputation that way, and he has Barnabas in his company. And then it says he took Titus with him. And I'll just skip up a little bit. And it says that Titus, of course, was a Gentile. Here he's going to Jerusalem. He's going to the church. And the big question would be, well, is this man uh, circumcised or not? Some were trying to force that upon him. Paul says, no, we didn't give in for a second. Titus was not compelled to be circumcised. Now, you're probably going back and thinking in Acts 16. Um, do we have those verses on the slide? I don't remember. No, I don't think so. Um, uh, yeah, here we go. 16.1. Paul came also to Derby and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy. That's Timothy of the book of Timothy. The son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. What does that make Timothy. Timothy was would be recognized as Jewish because his mother was Jewish. But because his father was a Gentile, he would be considered an apostate Jew. An apostate Jew. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. And remember Paul refers to Timothy as my son in the faith. So it was through Paul's ministry preaching that Timothy became a believer, got saved. And he proved himself to be a faithful brother. That's why he becomes sort of a delegate of the apostles. Spoken of by the brothers at Lister in Iconium. He had a good reputation like any elder deacon should have. Any, any preaching, teaching brother. Verse 3, Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him. And he took him and circumcised him. He circumcised Timothy, but he refuses to circumcise Titus. What's going on here? Is he a double-minded man? Is he confused? No. Why? Here, it says because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. 
They wanted to remove any objection that could possibly be had that would hinder gifted Timothy, who had a calling on his life from the Lord, to join Paul in the ministry. So if circumcision is going to be a thing held against him, hey, we're going to take advantage of true Christian liberty to remove all Jewish prejudices that still might be left in the hearts of genuine believers who were Jews that still had some consciousness about circumcision, confusion, you you could say, Paul wasn't going to try to debate it at that point. He simply said, these Jews, they, they would have an idea that he's not a candidate to be able to go out in the public ministry because he's not circumcised. And Paul said, all right, we're going to circumcise him. And he does. But Titus here in Galatians 2, he does not. Why? Because there was much at stake here. In the book of Galatians chapter 6 verse 15 he says, Circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing but a new creation. What really matters is to be born again, to be circumcised on the inward parts, to have that new birth. That's what true circumcision is and every sister and every brother who's born again is a circumcised child of God. And Paul is emphatic on that point. So no, he doesn't want the Galatians to go back to Judaism and to try to submit themselves to circumcision that will not benefit them whatever. It's no advantage to be circumcised. What's advantageous is to have been circumcised, it says in Colossians, without hands, but by the Lord Jesus Christ. You've been circumcised by the Lord Jesus Christ, not with any physical hands. So with Titus, it was emphatically important that he did not baptize him because he did not want to send a faulty message to the Jewish believers in Jerusalem that somehow circumcision played a role in the ministry, in the life of a child of God, that it was not absolutely uh, necessary, nor would it be acceptable under those circumstances. So the sixth point is that he did not yield to the Judaizers. He didn't baptize. Titus 5, number 6, he didn't yield to the Judaizers. And then he comes across those who, as the, I think the ESV uses the expression, those who seem to be influential. Those who seem to be we have today the celebrity uh, preachers, um, and I'm not putting them down. Um, they, in our minds, we should not see them as celebrities, but because we're li- living in a celebrity age where, you know, I remember in the days where you could go to a Celtic game for like 50 cents, and Bob Cousy, you might go out to lunch with him later, you know, I mean, now, I mean, you can't get near these guys without free bodyguards in between you, and they've got all the glitter and all the gold, and, and you think that you're in the presence of some kind of deity or something, but we don't want to think of preachers in that those kinds of categories at all, and, and I don't... I'm not saying that they would think that of themselves, but we need to have a mentality that they're just a brother and a sister in Christ. This is how Paul approached the the pillars. They called the pillars, those that were the the influential ones. And you have influential people in the church family, rightfully so. But he says about them that they didn't add anything to me. They didn't... They didn't give me anything new, anything different. They didn't enlighten me. They didn't correct me. They didn't make any adjustments in my teaching, whatever. No, not, not, not at all. 
Matter of fact, they even it says that they gave to Paul and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship. You go to the Jews, I'll go to the Gentiles. That was sort of the deal. We see, Paul, what you have is what the Lord gave you for the Gentiles. What we have is from the Lord to the Jews. Equally, you go, we go, we're all preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God for the Jews and Gentiles alike. And that's what united them. And then the last thing here, and it's sort of like a punctuation point that uh, Peter here is uh, mentioned. Uh, Cephas, uh, a pillar, he's referred to as a pillar. He was the first one that Paul saw. He was one of the first ones that Jesus appeared to after his resurrection. He writes two epistles of the New Testament. He's obviously a very significant apostle. But Peter slipped. Peter became fearful of the Gentile, of, uh, of the Jews because before James came up from Jerusalem to Antioch, where Peter was, it's Antioch, isn't that right? Um, I think so. Yeah. When he went up there, um, the Jews came up and, and, and Peter was afraid that he was going to be seed eating with the Gentiles. What's wrong with that? Biblically, that's, that's perfectly okay. <laughs> you know, there's no Jew, Gentile in the church of God. There's an equality there. And that should be greatly understood. The Jew is justified by faith. The Gentile is justified by faith. The one who trusts Jesus is, has him as Lord. And the Gentile who trusts Jesus has his, him as Lord. And the two become one. The middle wall of partition is broken down. There's no division between Gentiles and Jews. There's no distinction between a black man and a white man. There's no distinction between a Chinese person and an Italian person. We're all members of the same body. We all have the same spiritual blood, as, as it were, applied to us, and we're in that same family of God. Racism and all kinds of discrimination is at 100% eliminated in the church of God. I don't, I'm, I'm not a southerner, I never was in the south, hardly, and I don't know what it was to grow up in the south in the 1800s or whatever, but as we see in the scriptures, it seems so clear that there ought not to ever be in the body of Christ any kind of discrimination. Well, anyway, Peter is not discriminating necessarily yet. He's just fearful that the Jews are going to judge him eating with the Gentiles. But Paul is saying, you're sending a wrong message. And it said he had to rebuke them before all. So the final story is basically that Paul is establishing the authority that the Lord had given to him. And he's showing this to the Gentile Galatians, the kind of authority he had. But Paul go down, goes down in history is one of the most amazing conversions uh, in history. But we do have conversions today that are amazing. As a matter of fact, every person converted is an amazing conversion. Every one of you that's born again is a miracle. Now some of you have more radical transformations from what you were to what you are. And one of the ones, and I'm just going to take time because I know some of you have never heard this, but to me, and I've been a Christian for getting near to 50 years, um, I've never never come across a testimony like this testimony of a brother in Jamaica named Michael Thompson who grew up in a home where he was forced to have to go to church. He, he, he came to a point in his life at an early age where he, he found church boring, he couldn't stand it, and as soon as he could, he get out of the house, he went off on his own. It's, he says, I actually hated the church. I hated God and I hated pastors and all of the church people. Well, he, and he, he lived a, a ruckus, riotous life. 
all kinds of immoralities and drugs and alcohol and you name it, he was into it. He ended up becoming a, a, a bus driver. That was his occupation. And on one occasion, he had an assignment of having to transport a b- bunch of Christians from various churches to an area where there was going to be a crusade in some big building in the neighboring, they call them uh, their um, parishes. We call them state, they call them par- in the next state, if you will. So he drops them off. He goes out while they're there. He had a very bitter time just transporting them, but this is my job, the way he's thinking. He goes out and has his uh, fling, uh, and finally he comes back about 11.30 at night, thinking they got to be done by now. He arrives, and they're still spiritually hooping it up. Sister T- uh, Scully was her name. She was one of the most famous Jamaican singers at the time. I believe she's with the Lord right now. But she's singing away, and they're having a great gospel crusade time together. And uh, he he comes up there. He's hearing the music. He's saying, are you kidding me? I'm still going to stay here and listen to this stuff. He walks into the into the service. He is cussing at the top of his lungs, cussing God, cussing the pastors, cussing all Christians. He was bitter and hateful. He was totally out of control. And this is what he says. Upon arriving, I discovered that we they were still going strong. The place was packed and nobody was even close to being ready to leave. I was furious. I looked inside. I saw he called them wicked Christians clapping, singing, praising God and listening to Jamaica's famous gospel singer, Sister Scully. I couldn't contain myself. I was cursing vulgarity so loud that numerous people and pastors heard me. It was close to midnight by now. How can they not be finished? As I stood in the back fuming, Sister Scully started singing her most famous song. Come, I'm going to make you a fisher of men was one of the lines. And then for some reason, she abruptly stopped singing. Excuse me, let me back up. As I stood in the back fuming, Sister Scully started singing her hit song, Hurry Up and Get Ready to Go. Immediately, I heard a voice saying to me, Come, I'm going to make you a fisher of men. And then for some reason, she abruptly stopped singing that song and went into one of her other songs with these lyrics. His blood was not just blood offered by a spotless lamb. His blood was precious blood that washed the sins of man. Brother Thompson said, I never heard that song or the words, but suddenly my hand shot up over my head like a soldier surrendering to the other side. And without any altar call, for no apparent reason I could think of, I just started to walk to the stage with tears running down my cheeks. Sister Scully had her eyes closed at the moment that I reached the stage. When she opened them, she saw a hands held up, broken, teary-eyed man standing speechless at her side and said, Sir, can I help you? I asked her to please sing that song one more time, which she did. His blood was not just blood offered by a spotless lamb. His blood was precious blood that washed the sins of man. After the song, she handed me the mic. I gladly took it and said from the top of my lungs, I surrender all to you, Jesus. I want to. I want, I want to be yours. I belong to you. I had been given a new heart at that moment. I wasn't the old Michael Thompson that I knew all my life. God performed a miracle. I was changed forever. 
The man that drove them to the crusade wasn't the same man that drove them back. And that's not the end of the story. He goes back to his living with his lover, his girlfriend that had been a mother of uh, some of his children. He didn't know, but that very day his girlfriend had gone to the local market to purchase an item known as a ice pick. This is the actual picture of the ice pick. She had heard that her boyfriend, Michael Thompson, was out cheating on her. And this had been happening over and over again. And she had it, and she was going to end his life that night. She had the ice pick with her when he arrived. It was 3 o'clock in the morning. By the time he drove the Christians home in the bus and got home himself, he came in. It was about 3 in the morning. She was half awake. And he explained to her how the Lord Jesus changed his life right there that night. And he was a new creation. He sat on the edge of the bed telling her, and she started to cry herself. And she said, lift up that pillow. And under the pillow was the ice pick. That ice pick was going to be used to stab him in the heart and kill him. They say that ice picking a person is the best way to kill somebody because there's no cries, there's no shouts, there's no noises. It puts you out immediately. She started to cry and she said, look. She pointed in the corner and then she had her luggage all packed up because as soon as she was going to stab him to death, she was heading out the door out of town. Tell me about it. The name of the track is called Picked by God. Instead of, and there's the pick. It's all amazing grace, brothers and sisters. Thank you, God, for saving Saul. Thank you for Michael Thompson. And thank God for you. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for the great gospel that has changed our lives. Thank you for the testimony that we have of our brother, our departed brother now, Saul of Tarsus, Paul, uh, the faithful apostle to the Gentiles and teacher, Lord. We thank you, Lord, that you give authority to your writers and your apostles. And now we have the written word, Lord. Help us to be obedient to the scriptures. Help us to rejoice in the great gospel that you have saved us by, that we can be faithful witnesses to you in this wicked world. And Lord, if anyone in this room doesn't know Christ, Lord, have mercy upon them. May even the song that we're about to sing, the words, the prayer, what they've heard, Lord, use your gospel once again, bringing them to saving faith. May they too throw up their arms and say, I surrender all. Lord, I give you my heart, my life, my all. Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to Thee. We ask these things, Father, in Jesus' precious and worthy name. Amen. Amen.